Hi, you're about to listen to an episode of Borough Talks, a podcast from Borough Market. A very, very warm welcome to you. We're going to be bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with some inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Borough Talks. And if you do, you can subscribe for more from us. Hello, everybody, and a very, very warm welcome to Borough Talks, which is Borough Markets podcast. I am your host, Angela Clutton, and I am sitting here today with two guests. Um, I have Sheila Dillon. Hi, Sheila. Hello. Lovely to see you. <laughs> very uh, nice to see you, Angela. <laughs> we're in person, which is a joy, um, and an equal joy, but sadly not in person, is Alex Renton. Hi, Alex. Hi there. Um, Alex, I realised I didn't ask you where you are. Are you in Edinburgh? I'm in Edinburgh. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Sunny day in the great city. <laughs> well, cherish that. I went to university in Edinburgh, so I know those don't necessarily come along all the time. <laughs> so enjoy it. Um, and why do I have Sheila and Alex here? Um, we're here because we're going to talk about the food programme, which anyone who's just heard Sheila even say hello, their, their hairs on the back of their neck may have stood up a little bit on end and they might think it's <laughs> Sunday and it's the food programme because um, Sheila obviously is so so connected and associated with that wonderful show. And we're here because uh, the first, I think I'm right in saying, the first book connected with the food programme, yeah, Sheila's nodding, which is good, has uh, just come out, 13 Foods That Shape Our World, How Our Hunger Has Changed the Past, Present and Future. Um, the book has sprung out of the food programme, but written by... Alex. That's right. That's right. Uh, so we are going to weave our way through this conversation thinking about the food programme and its role and why it is so cherished. Um, and I think we can just take that for granted that it is cherished. And then we're going to also talk about the book and how it is seeking to uh, represent, I suppose, in some ways, uh, what the food programme does. So let's let's talk about the food programme. Sheila, for anyone who may be listening who's thinking, the food programme, but, but what is that? How have I not come across it? Give us a, give us a quickie on what the food programme is. Well, the food programme is, uh, it's not so odd now, but it, it, it's, it's an odd programme in that it covers absolutely everything in the world that can be seen if you look through the lens of food. You know, it can be pesticides, it can be art, it can be um, digging up an anteater in Tanzania and eating it just after it's been killed, it can be um, it can be food and opera, it could be anything really. I mean it's 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 a way of looking at the world rather than saying it's about people say, oh the food program, you know, it must be cakes and things. Well, sure, we have done great programs on cakes. But it's much, much more. I'm going to ask you to say your catchphrase. What do you say at the beginning of every show? We say, uh, that place for hungry minds. Oh, I was determined to get you to say it on here. And you have. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it, isn't it? It is that yeah. place for hungry yeah, minds. Yeah, it is. It's a... Uh, it, it, what made it so unusual, I think, I mean, I wasn't around at the beginning, you know, when it was set up by Derek Cooper, was that food, which, as you know, you know, has been a trivial, you know, it's women, it's domestic, it's, it's you know, it, it's of not, not of any importance. And this program said it's important. And what's more, you can understand the world if you take food seriously. When did it start, Sheila? September 1979. Wow. Okay. I know. Derek Cooper had been lobbying for a long time to get something on Radio 4. And I think he actually persuaded 
uh, BBC Scotland to do a, a short series of the, uh, based on his ideas. Um, and then, you know, that was over. And then he finally, after several years, pulled it off. And has it run pretty much consistently since then? Oh, yeah. I mean, it used to be, um, we used to have the summer off. Certainly when I joined, you know, there was this summer when, you know, those days of the idea that you could go to conferences and talk to people and, you know, sort of gather material for the year. But um, now it's 52 or 53 programmes a year. Wow. I mean, that is that is sun going, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, when I was producing it and when I was first presenting it, when I was first presenting it, I did all 52. And that's, you know, I think I look at that now and I think... What? <laughs> what were you doing? I know. What was, what was I doing? How did I do it? When did, did you join the food program, Julia? Um, well, it was a long time ago. Um, in the late eighties, um, I'd come from New York. I'd been working on a, a radical food magazine, and I came to back to live in Britain. and And I just heard Derek Cooper on Sunday. And I thought in my Lancashire way, by gum, there's a place I should work. And really, was it that, that moment, and then you kind of, you made it happen? Well, it took a long time. It wasn't that simple. Um, (laughs) But there was a strange coincidence, actually. It was very weird. Um, So I heard this, and I thought, so I got a Radio Times, and I looked up who the producer was, and it was a name I recognised, and um, John Forsyth. And I thought, well, maybe it's the same John Forsyth. Because I used to, you know, in this, in my marriage, we made this deal that one of us would, only one of us would have a full-time job. The other one could be creative and do everything. And my turn at being the full-time job had been living in Edinburgh, editing a magazine. And when I left to go to move to New York, where my husband was about to be the, you know, the full-time job doer, um... I I was part of a board that interviewed for my replacement editing this magazine and we we um we appointed a guy called John Forsyth. And indeed it was the same John Forsyth, oddly. It's funny <laughs> when the world works out. Right, I isn't, know, it? isn't it weird? So I wrote this letter saying, Are you the John Forsyth? And uh, you know, I'm I'm really, you know, I've done all this food stuff. I've been, you know, that's what I've been doing. I've been writing, I've been and and he said, Well actually I'm 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 leaving, but you know, the new producer is X. Vanessa Harrison. So, you know, I'll pass your letter on. And it, it did take quite a long time. Vanessa didn't go, oh, you're marvellous, and do come. I mean, it wasn't like that. And so I'm interested, Sheila, in how you may feel, and the answer to this may be, Angela, it hasn't. I'm interested in how you feel the focus and purpose of the food programme has evolved over that time. Well, it's, you know, we have a lot of rivals now. You know, the the... This point of view, which was seen as extremely weird back then, and which gave us a lot of space, actually, on Radio 4, because we could do all kinds of odd things, because people thought, oh, it's just food, it doesn't matter, you know. And um, But now, there's a whole generation. When did that shift, and why did that shift? Um, well, if I had to choose a tipping point, I mean, there were many things going on at the time, but if I had to choose a tipping point, it would be mad cow disease, it would be um, BSE. It would be that moment where, up to that time, you had this cheap food policy, just just sailing along. We were just going down the same road as the Americans. You know that food cheap at the till, no questions. Why would anybody worry about it? And then suddenly, 
we saw there was a price for cheap food. It was a, a very, very, very high price, multi-billions, and n- never mind about ruined lives and people who died. And I think, it, I think if you look at it, you can see it was a, it was a sort of point about people being s- skeptical about government authority because you'd had all these people saying, no, it's absolutely, they can't possibly transfer from... Um, Sheep to cows and cows to anyone else. And then um, and then it's all safe. And then it wasn't safe. And, and it was... So you'd had food policy people saying, you know, this, this was a problem or our food system was a problem. But, but you know, it was, it was a tiny, tiny mm. portion of people. People like Tim Lang when he was at, on the food board of, the, of London, the council. Um, and... So, so that was a kind of tipping point at the, you know, but also this, all this other stuff was going on because of Thatcher and Reagan and the monetization, you know, public is, is bad, private is good, um, you know, the dismantling of the legislation which um, allowed companies to take over other companies. And so you got the globalization of our food supply, the massive growth of supermarkets, you know, that, that really sort of took over... Um, selling us food. And and so that drew more people into thinking about the food system. Yeah. And so do you feel that the focus purpose of the food programme is different now than when you started working on it? Well, it was easier then. It was easy, you know, because you could do almost anything. It sounds so easy doing 50 odd a year. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you could... You could, you know, for example, uh, for personal reasons, and, and because I'd read some interesting research, I did a very early program about cancer and diet, and um, this early epidemiological research showing that people who ate a, a diet high in fruit and vegetables, or vegetables and fruit, more accurately, um, and legumes and whole grains, you know, they had much lower cancer rates, and so I thought. Well, that's interesting. And so what does that mean about people who have cancer and helping to prevent recurrence? Well, it's, you know, that's, that's as, as common as, you know, that's a common thought now. I remember we, ra- we rang uh, cancer centers up and down Britain and cancer specialists, and they treated us like we were mad. I mean, I mean they were con- not only like we were mad, but they were contemptuous of the stupidity of our questions, of the idea that you could even begin to think that diet had anything to do with actually even the cause of cancer, but certainly that you could add it to um, to help people get better yeah. or, or prevent recurrence. It uh, occurs to me when I was thinking about um, what we were talking about today, that there must be things like that, and you, and you just sort of you know, said one, which you have seen the conversation within food and wider begin and then sort of roll its arc, I suppose, of becoming kind of accepted within society of being a thing. And what what a privilege, really, to have been there to kind of, to be part of that arc of understanding. Yes, it is a privilege. Yeah, yeah. I can see the arc. Yeah. I can see going to um, the Pyrenees with Peter Gott, you know, the market trader at, at Borough, you know, one of the people who helped get it going, and Farmer Sharp. Um, and the two of them were trying to get a... Um, an abattoir built in the Lake District for Herdwick sheep, for the traditional sheep. And they couldn't. They couldn't get any support from the council. They couldn't, you know, nobody was interested. And 
And uh, But we knew, we were told by someone else actually in the market about this in the Pyrenees, a very similar situation, that the the um, local authority, that there, that there was a, um, an, a new abattoir. And both Peter and Andrew Sharp went, well, the French, you know, they're still under the table, you know, it's all, you know, it's, you know, it's, they don't care about rules. So Andrew um, and Peter and I went off to the Pyrenees to, to see this abattoir and to talk to the, uh, the sheep farmers, who were indeed very similar lives to Andrew and Peter. And of course, it wasn't under the table deals. It was a it was a program that was enormously revealing, to, at least to me. I hope to listeners, about what it means to be in a, the two societies, the French one and the British. What it means to see food as a pillar of your identity as a person and as a nation, and what to see food as irrelevant to your identity and to and to civil and living a civilized life. You know, we saw that local authority did everything within the rules, as we could have done in the Lake District, to build this abattoir, which enabled the sheep to have a local label, to enable, and people in the towns around were terribly proud of this. Would they care in Windermere? Yeah. Not then. They yeah. didn't. I mean, yeah. I think they do now, but not then. Yeah, absolutely. And so to see and feel that change is yeah. extraordinary. And it feels that, Alex, that really kind of comes through in the book. Because I think you know, you, the, the subtitle of the, you know, the book is about how hunger has changed the past, present and future. And I think what you do in the book so well for each of the stories, each of the 13 stories that you cover, is really kind of you know, delve into that history, but also very much think about where we are not, where we are now and what might be. And, and again, it's that arc, isn't it, that of, of, you know, of understanding where things come from and where we're going. Yes, and, and I think, you know, I mean, as a print journalist who grew up with the food programme, I was 18 in 1979 and just starting to cook for myself. It, it, that, that, that way of telling stories in which you, which is, you know, can be the best of BBC radio journalism and it's kind of the, the sort of um, feature news magazine articles I used to write, um, it, where you merge law and history and some politics and some sort of native good knowledge and with investigation, but also with that sprinkling of joy and appreciation that the reason we're all fascinated by food is because we like eating. Um, you know, for me, it's a sort of ideal way of telling a story. I, I worked for Oxfam for a few years yeah. in the Far East and, and I and I got very into... I, I, I used to file pieces for The Observer where I'd where I'd look at a society like the poorest people in Cambodia through what they were cooking for their wedding. And and food has always provided that. If you want to understand human humans and human problems then and their politics, looking at it through food really helps. And the food programme and the things it tackled kind of taught me that. I, I mean, it's interesting hearing Sheila reminiscing about the BSE crisis. I, mean, I was a young news reporter uh, in, and I was up in Cumbria in 1992, watching, um, I was working for the Independent, watching the, the burning of the cattle, the 4.4 mm. million cattle. And um, 
being informed by my favourite programme because Sheila and uh, and the programme were, were on, on and the scientists they had were were ahead of the news on that. Well, I feel so that happened. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I was just say I feel that happened very recently with Ukraine. I felt that I think it was Dan, wasn't it, who did a show about was, yeah. yeah and about yeah. Uh, what was about to happen you know, with the, the the crisis and the wheat and other things that I felt you know the show. Food program down you know, ahead of the news on that. That was certainly yes. the first time it crossed my mind that okay, we've got a whole other problem happening here. Absolutely, and also sunflower oil from Ukraine as well. Exactly. It's interesting that because Sheila will remember that in the final stages of, of editing the book, which she and I and, and a, another reader were having a debate about what was speculation in global markets now more of a cause for food price rises in staples like wheat. Or was it a harvest failure in Ukraine? And of course, um, sadly, slightly too late for the book. Um, yeah. uh, we've now been told what, what the story was. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure who I want to ask this question to, so I'm going to maybe do both or anyone can grab. Um, why this book and why now? The you know, food programme been going for a long time. This is the first book to spring out of it. Why this book? Why now? Alex, do you I, know? I, I, yeah, are you, well, are you, Sheila, you probably know more about the negotiations that brought it about than I do because... Um, I came in later. Maybe you. <laughs> um, well, there's a there's a move within the BBC because you know the hard times financially for the BBC to to make some money out of programs. You know that you know perhaps the food program there'd be a book in it, and uh, so it began. I think like that. You know that we were approached by some level of management in the BBC and Penguin Books to say, you know, would we like to do a book? But um, and we thought this was a good idea. And uh, the first idea from Penguin was, I can't remember what it was, but I thought it was terrible. And um, so, <laughs> so then... then there was someone listening as we go, on, that's my idea. <laughs> I wasn't involved with that stuff. Oh, well, we I was making we that doubly clear again <laughs> that we Alex Hanson was not involved at this point. No, Alex was nothing like involved. Um, no, and then we came up with this idea about, you know, 13 foods, you know, the... Um, subjects that the food program had covered all these years. So that seemed good. And then um, Claire McGinn, our editor, asked me who I thought might write it because none of us could because we were, we were just we were making programs. And, uh, and I said, well, there's Alex Renton. He's written marvelous books and, you know, writes, is, you know, has been on the food program, really understands what it's about. Um, so why don't we ask him first? And so that's when you moved in. Alex. Yeah. I think so, you... I was so flattered. And honestly, I mean, I've done a, books on commission and books of my own, but I was really, really uh, pleased to be asked by the food programme. And I that, think that, do, that that ask and that choice is really be a huge benefit to the book because it probably would have been easier to go with a, a, someone who just does food writing. Because Alex, you know, you've been a war correspondent, so you say, you know, you work at Roxfam, you know, your, your lens is much broader than just, in inverted commas, food. Yeah, but it would have been so easy to have gone with someone who was a food writer only. And then I, you know, the book would have lacked that yeah. breadth around it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, Alex's experience of food, like the story he was just telling you about uh, Cambodia, um, just brought a breadth to the book that, you know, is invaluable. Yeah. It's, you know, it's what enriches it. It, what's make, what, it is what makes it what it is. Yeah. Okay, Alex, I'm going to test you, but if you have a copy to hand, now's the time to grab it. What are the 13 <laughs> foods in the book? 
Oh man! Uh, do you know this is kind of a, a a pub. I did this with an audience the other day uh, in a sort of stalling for time, library. Alex. It's stalling for the time. Event. Right? Okay. Uh, damn. No, I'm joking. Um, Finish your story. I'm joking. <laughs> the the fun, actually, I give briefly. One of the fun things is at one point it was twelve or fourteen, and then a marketing guy oh. in the BBC in a big meeting said, you know, we find that we get more clicks if we use odd numbers on lists. I actually think I have to... Because it seems more significant. I think I have to give credit to that to Dimitri Hutard, our editor, because I think it was Dimitri who said, let's choose an odd number. And I suppose 13 because it is such a particular kind of number, isn't it? It does really ring out. So what what was drafted? Were there sort of 12 chosen and then you found another one? Or were there 14 uh, and you cut one? No, no, it was more like more like cutting back. But I, I think I'm quite pleased with the list in the end. I, I mean, and it's interesting if you look at, look through it. Only one of them is a food that is entirely of our time um, uh, or the way we use it. Uh, uh, all the others are our grandparents, our great-grandparents were using. Four of them only appeared in European food culture in the after the, quote, discovery of America. Um, uh, tomatoes, cocoa, uh, potatoes, and chili. Um, but the one, you know, the one that actually just arrives in the 20th century is is the most is kind of the most significant in the food world we now live in, both in in hard and and, and, and liquid food, which is soya. Yeah. That was obviously ancient in Asia, but the you know massively important in our diets now. And I'm not sure any of us think that's a good thing. It's certainly very complicated, isn't it? And I, yeah, yeah, it's um. You've, you've picked the one which wasn't one I was hoping to delve into, but now no. you've said it, now I really want to talk about it. Because <laughs> I've chosen... I de- oh, you, you've thrown me a little red herring there. Because I've chosen three things to kind of just get into a little bit, uh, partly because they're things which, to be completely frank, and I, I'm the host so I can do this, they're things which I personally find really, really fascinating, and also things which I feel connect with Borough Market and the values very much that kind of the, the ring through uh, the market. And so, you know, we were, so we haven't talked about the 13, but the 13 are bread, salt, oil and fat, dairy, sugar, potato, chicken, spice, tomato, rice, banana, soy and cocoa. An awful lot there for anyone who is interested in food and if you're listening to the podcast you probably are and I think what each of those chapters does so well I say we're going to have a chat in more detail about breads fats and dairy but what they all do so well and I think this very much connects with what the show does so well is you don't assume knowledge and I think that's really important especially with the show itself Sheila because it occurs to me that there are people who tune in for it people who might like I do I go for a walk and listen to it on the podcast but there are other people, I'm sure, who just have Radio 4 on all day. And it just happens to be what kind of comes across them. And I love that the show, uh, as I say, doesn't assume people have a certain level of pre-knowledge when they come to it. And Alex, I feel that the book does that as well. Was that a conscious choice, if you agree with it? Yes, I think I do agree with that. I, I, I think so. It, it's it's very hard to target books at audiences and... And, you know, we all like to, you know, an awful lot of us now like to feel we're food experts and connoisseurs as well. But well, I'm glad you say that, you know, because it's definitely trying to ape the show's broad broadness is kind of my idea. Is that a conscious choice for you, Sheila, on the show? Well, it's something we have to keep reminding ourselves uh-huh. um, when a second, sometimes when a you know second pair of ears comes on, you know, and, and listens to a rough cut and they go, mm, that might be a bit, you know, sort of in. It's... You have to be conscious of that all the time. Yeah. That you can't, you can't be talking to the bubble. You can't be, you know, pre, you know, 
talking to the people in the chapel. You know, I could go yeah. on with yeah. terrible metaphors for ages, <laughs> but you know what I mean. And uh, um, but it's so easy to do that, and yeah, and to fall into unconsciously kind of fall into that trap. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's, especially for the years you know, you've been doing, it's an extraordinary skill to still navigate that line above assumption. Well, you. We now have, you know, Dan Saladino joined the program what, 15 years ago as a... Fledgling, then. As a fledgling. <laughs> young Dan. Uh, young Dan, um, but as a, as, as a producer. And, uh, you know, has gradually, you know, changed into producing and presenting. So there's Dan's view. And then we, we have two new um, presenters, Leila Kazim and Jager Wise, and who are younger even than Dan. And uh, so you... you you know, you have we have meetings. We have you know we, our experiences are very different. Jake is a brewer. Uh, Layla's a grower. Um, she's a traveler, mm-hmm. and so we we keep each other on the mark or up to the mark, and which is much more dif- difficult. You know, if there's just one presenter and and a yeah. couple of producers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Alex, let's let's go to bread. It's something which mm. people who go to bread market, you know, bread ahead and Olivier and the Plough Station and all these wonderful stalls who have these you know gorgeous breads piled up. Um, but that's only sort of you know telling one aspect of bread. Just just talk to us a little bit. So I don't want to give away everything that's in in the book by any stretch of any stretch of the chalk. But talk to us a little bit about bread, Alex, and why why it features in the book and what you think the key things are for people to understand. Well, I, I mean, of course, you know, it, it's in importance in not just uh, the Western European diet, but so many diets. Uh, and its it status is in, in like the most interesting staple foods, both as a source of joy and tradition and cultural celebration, but also the staple that we eat. And, and, and then, of course, it's one of those foods that industrialization has really changed um, out, of rec- out of recognition of you know, the ordinary buyer, I, you know, our great-grandparents, our great-great-grandparents really would not recognise what basic bread is at all and I think would probably be disgusted by it. And and I think, you know, it it, it, it is one of those stories where you, you have to say in the end that the industrialisation of bread, you know, all sorts of harms we can talk about, but it hasn't been a success just in that we don't eat it anymore. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I was amazed to find that a century ago, we ate, we ate 150 kilos of bread a year. Now it's down to 30 kilos. And that's mm. not just because of... I mean, bread, fi- bread with fibre in it's fantastically healthy, as we know, and, and useful and in, in all sorts of ways in the kitchen. But it, it's because modern bread isn't nice. And I think all that was and when we know, say the, modern the bread, staple of life. It, sorry, it is, you know, it is the staff of life. It is yeah. absolutely key to so many cultures. And we've kind of, you know, the story continues, but we did do a lot of tr- bad to it. Yeah. And when you, so let's sort of be maybe slightly clearer about what we mean when we say modern bread. What is it? What, what kind of bread is it we're talking about? Because we're not talking about, you know, the lovely loaves that Olivier's at the market. What are we talking about? Well, I think we're talking about the the fast production, fast rise um, uh, industrial loaf that was practical to make at very low cost in in a factory process involving no humans and and really kind of none of the ancient methods of of properly treating um, water, yeast, um, bread and salt, uh, um, flour and salt, which which is the slow 
combination of of um, of the fermentation and all the processes that come through that to, to, to give the rise and then produce the loaf just bypassing that stuff really for no reason other than profit and practicality shelf life shelf life well we're talking yeah. about the chorley wood process which is i'm being sarcastic now one of britain's um um, greatest um, technical achievements in the 1950s, which was to discover this way of making bread very fast, very cheaply, with additives, and it gave you this big fluffy loaf that we slice up and and yeah. um, consume not so much of. As, yeah. And I'm an expert on it now because we've just made this bread program, and as part of that bread program, I wore a glucose monitor, you know, one of those implants in your arm, and so did producer Natalie Donovan. And we ate this dry bread, 100 grams of dry, different industrial breads every morning. Right. It was terrible. Really? Yes, it was. I mean, I know you wouldn't eat bread like that, but we just, we were testing our, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. our glucose levels. and But the taste, oh yeah. dear. Although I am um, going to tell a slightly personal story about uh, my sort of only th- good thing I can say about having had that kind of you know, chorley with bread is I was in the hospital. My, my dad's very, very ill. Um, the nurses were trying to look after uh, me and my sisters, and they uh, they did us some toast and butter. And it was, you know, it was it was that it was that you know white bread and you know in those bags we all know what it was. Mm. Um, and they did it with you know it was probably margarine. You know, now I would they wouldn't whatever the situation I probably would run a mile from it. It was probably the best toast and butter I've ever had in my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> and, and a bacon sandwich made with that kind of bread. Yeah, right. I know. It's be, true. Be, I know. I, mean, I think that is absolutely true. But it's, that's also about familiar. You know, I, sure. I, I will still remember with enormous joy the white mother's pride, you know, the proper tall Scottish sliced mother's pride, uh, spread with margarine or butter and covered in white sugar that my granny, my Scottish granny, used to give us for a treat. I mean, wow. and I'm sure I could, you know, I'd eat it now yeah. because it would, because yeah. the body would spark. But you have to remember that, you know, the reason that toasted white chorley wood bread is kind of great is because is it's designed to be that way because of all those sugars that are caramelizing when it goes brown. Yeah. Massively full of sugar. So, well, yeah, um, I mean, it's turned into it, sugar. I mean, it's not necessarily yeah. full of sugar. Yeah. Yeah. Or added yeah. sugar. Start was the starch is caramelized. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've um we've we've all mentioned now butter and margarine and stuff. So let's let's uh leave bread. Although I should just say the, the bread chapter is about much more than Chorley Wood and those modern processes. There was this, there's a lot of history in there as well and some really interesting stuff about grain um and diversity of. So there's a much more it, the, the bread chapter is much more rounded than our quick peek into it may have made it sound. <laughs> um but butter, which is a personal, you know, obsession of mine, really. Um so let's get into fats and oil. Um, and dripping and suet and lard. Mm. All these great words, Alex. (laughs) Do you you think we'll ever, I mean, despite all we've learned and known since the end of the the great saturated fats scare uh, about the relatively good, good, the goodness of of animal fats for us and, and the joy of cooking with them and eating them, do you think we'll ever come back to what our great-grandparents did I, I i i think that's that's one of the stories that has just ended it seems to me and, and gosh we've lost so much not least in terms of wasting animal products when i feel quite positive in my answer to that actually i'm usually that i feel that those things maybe are making a bit of a comeback i think there's a general understanding 
again, this is maybe the bubble that we were talking about before about you know, butter being you know good and delicious, and maybe you know, obviously people do have to be careful about the it's about balance of everything, isn't it? So that said, you know, people are sort of you know, enjoying having butter in their life rather than you know, the fake spreads, um, and but I think that is starting to extend to dripping and suet and lard, and I think maybe increasingly so as we look at shelves and things like sunflower oil are just not there and then you know and, and who knows what's going to happen about the price of those things that maybe a slight beneficiary of that might be that some of these you know heritage you know, british heritage fats do make a comeback am i dreaming sheila I don't think, I mean, I think there are a lot of factors, as you just said, coming into play, you know, that some of those seed oils are not going to be available. The science is building against those seed oils, um, you know, money. And, and as, as uh, Alex just said, the fantastic waste of yeah. these animal fats. And, and if, we, if the science is telling us they're not damaging in the way that we've been told for decades... Then it's so why? hard to get that message through to it's people. It's terrible, but it's. But I mean, you know, you've had decades and decades of industry telling you. I mean, just think of the of all that advertising for for margarine. Although I, you know, I do look at young vegan activists eating vegan butter, and you think vegan butter isn't that just margarine? Yeah, yeah. Alex, yeah. you sound like you want to say something. Go for it. Yes, yeah, of course, vegan, you wouldn't be allowed to say vegan butter in the States because the dairy industry has protected the word, and I think we probably should. Wow, yeah. I didn't um, know that. I, I mean, will it come back? I mean, you know, I, I, I live with in a household of, of young people and, 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 and a very and, and my partner who's quite persevering with my food experiments, but I literally, for this book, I went to Tesco and found the only brand of lard they buy they sell on that in the shelf and the only band of drip brand of dripping and they've sat in our fridge ever since because the rest of the family went on strike they said well no i said well look you get your, your chips are cooked in dripping you know yeah, but don't you tell a story not, in the book not going in our food you know? but don't you tell a story in the book alex that you cook is, is it chips that you cook and they all try them and they love mm. them and it's only when they know what yeah. they are that they've got a problem and, and what's at the root of the problem what are their issues alex? why do you <laughs> I, actually, we should have them on. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, because you, you couldn't find more foodie, educated, um, uh, you know, uh, proper um, Edinburgh middle class people who who kind of ought to be coming back to animal fats. But I, you know, I think you were right. You know, there, there is a really I, I, there are very few recipes in the book, and they're just things that give me joy and things also from food program contributors. And and there is one for Scottish butteries, which is this fantastic the Scottish croissant. Which comes from northeast the the Murray coast from northeast Scotland and 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 is made with forty percent butter and lard and there is a campaign up and down the bakery the remaining bakeries of Aberdeenshire and Murrayshire to uh, stamp out the vegetable oil buttery because this is a fisherman's snack totally delicious of layered pastry like a croissant um, that must be made with lard and butter yeah. My sister will never go and stay with her. Maybe she does this because in the way that sisters do, just to be annoying. But whenever I go, she makes a big point about putting out the butter, which she's bought specially <laughs> for me, and which she sort of rolls her eyes slightly that you know I'm having butter, and she gets out her tub of you know whatever. And and yeah. and no matter how long we've been having this conversation slash argument, it goes absolutely nowhere because as you mentioned, Sheila, it's just been it. It's, that messaging has been there for so long it's very difficult to unpick are you the older sister no i'm the baby oh right. she's the eldest so maybe she's asserting her authority yeah somehow. she is yes i know best I yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> she doesn't listen to this i'm very sure she doesn't <laughs> 
One of the things that I had to go out actually in the dairy chapter is looking a little of this of the history of the dairy industry and how it shaped British countryside, uh, you know, lowland countryside and 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 society. And and I did a bit on on the history of the dairy maid and the mm. butter making. This this woman's job historically for all sorts of you know bizarre cultural and you know and misogynistic looking back on them reasons but but also the source of poetry and poems and art and so on that women women with the only women can make butter properly the rhythms that the women the, the poems that women sang to make butter so maybe we should try and recover butter as part of feminist history ah that's a whole other that's a whole other <laughs> conversation to get into. I love that. And I love the dairy chapter. I'd say it's something which I find very, very interesting. And you, you really get into the lovely thing about how it, the dairy farming and the huge impact it's had on our countryside and about the railways and pasteurization and you know, it, it's it's really, really interesting the way you tell the, the story and I do urge people to, you know, grab it and have a read. I have to say the book owes an awful lot to lots of lovely food program episodes that I listened to, which was a great joy. That story about the the, the British cities and urbanisation and dairy products is Caroline Steele's wonderful uh, book, Hungry City. Yeah, um, yeah. I owe a great debt to that. Yeah. Um, so at the end of your 13 foods and having done all this, Alex, can I ask you what you feel the common threads coming out of it were for you? Yes, I thanks. I think that that's quite simple and and, and you know it, it is that capitalism and food are you know have always been since the beginning of the industrial era a, a, a really difficult relationship and and whereas while Margaret Thatcher famously announced that no one needed a food minister or even an agriculture minister because the market would look after it it's patently not true and never more true than now and the fact that we remain in a place where our food is in real terms cheaper than it ever has been in modern history, but we have huge numbers of people using food banks and unable to nourish themselves properly, says that the, the government has to get back more involved in, in food strategy. Um, Going back to Carolyn Steele, you know, her thing is no, no such thing as cheap food. Um, and anyone yeah. who has not listened to um, the episode that the Food Programme did with Carolyn two years ago, maybe 18 mm, months yeah, ago. Yeah, where, where, we, where we went into the future oh, and she was the yes. Prime Minister. My yeah. goodness. So Carolyn Steele... Uh, the Cytopia yeah, Programme. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so Carolyn Steele, a yeah, wonderful yeah, food writer and more. The, the premise of the programme was that, yeah, exactly as you say, she had gone into the future and that she, the Cytopia Party, was in charge, running everything, and that the idea that, you know, was has never left me and probably, and I hope never will, is that everything else feeds into the food department because everything is food or affected by food in the end. It's an extraordinary programme, Sheila, wasn't it? It is. And, and you asked me much earlier, you know, what the how the food programme has changed, you know, since, you know, we had the field to ourselves. You know, we have to think a lot more <laughs> in a way. And the Satobia programme was that. It was to say, you know, you, you just have to be more imaginative and... You know, let, let's make a sci-fi program. Let's yeah. use carrots. You know, there's been riots and chaos and climate-induced awthulness. She's she's that. What, what would the world be like? Yeah. What would you know? We've always we're always saying this. Look through the lens of food. All right. The prime minister is someone who is, and the government is is actually doing that. So, what would it be like? Yeah, uh, I think it's so interesting that they, for you, are the common threads that come out from having you know, delved deeply into these thirteen foods. And so, just to kind of take that one step slightly further what would you say 
are the lessons to learn from having, as I say, taken this dive into the 13. Keep talking. Keep, you know, a proper food lover is an inquisitive person. You know, he needs to know where it comes from, why it's done the way it was, what it, what they might be doing to the planet with their food habits, and keep loving it. So being inquisitive and curious and critical about your food and food supply is part of loving eating. Yeah. Um, I think you've sort of hit on a few things there that I feel very much about the market and about all markets, not just Borough Market. We happen to do this for Borough Market. Um, but it's why I feel that markets generally play a bit of a role for that. People, do you agree, Sheila, about sort of helping people stay Oh, inquisitive? absolutely, yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm proudest of is that when Borough Market was struggling to begin, which it was, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, people go, oh, no, you know, it's like it's always... No, no, it wasn't. No. And the, and the uh, <laughs> you know, the, 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 what's it called, the, the people who run Borough Market... You know, back in the day, they were not at all keen on the idea of having a retail market. And it was people like me, you know, Henrietta Green did yeah. the first one. But then um, Peter Gott was, yeah. was a, you know, enormously important the way he just kept bringing people, you know, and the way he built that secret loo and wash basin, you know, where nobody <laughs> could see and the way he slept in his van. And, um, because markets are just crucial, crucial. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think maybe more so since the pandemic. Yeah. I think people have maybe connected a little bit more with their local markets again because there was that point where maybe that was the best way of getting. Certainly, certainly in Borough, there was a definite point at the beginning of lockdowns when the supermarkets were struggling to kind of you know get things out there, get things in and get them out. Was that the local community around Borough? You could just see they were really massively valuing just mm. being able to go and get their eggs and their bread. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and- and also, you, you need to get you out of London for a moment. <laughs> I mean, yes, um, well, let's we, get, you know, get us out of London. Here, yeah. Up here in Edinburgh, we, we still don't have, you know, we have pop-up markets and we have Saturday markets and with a bit of farmer involvement, we still don't have anything approaching Borough Market. And our three indie supermarkets um, closed two years ago wow. um, that were actually channeling local food properly and helping local producers. But there's a new and, one, you know, right? We're, we're, a, we're a, a, you know... A, Five university cities full of lots of wealthy people. So, Borough Market, come up here, please. <laughs> I, I think the organisers of the farmers' market on Saturday in Edinburgh might be a bit upset by that, Alex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Before we wind up completely, um, Sheila, I just want to talk about the Food and Farming Awards. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Tell us, tell us about the Food and Farming Awards. Well, the food... <coughs> excuse me. The Food and Farming Awards sort of rose out of the, the idea of expanding beyond the Radio 4 audience. I mean, this is, we're talking pre-podcast and, um, and, and pre-social media. And we had this marvellous editor called Graham Ellis, who's actually now on the board of the BBC. But he just, just came up with this, you know, came to me and we just worked on this idea. And then Derek, of course, was still there then. And um, that what we would try to do is... To, to look for the people who were changing, eco- you know, local economies, who were changing lives, um, who were, you know, I mean, you've heard this a lot, but, you know, making Britain better through food. And, uh, the, the, you know, we, we, we lobbied um, Prince Charles and Stephen Fry to help out in that first one, which is the very first one was in St. James's Palace. And how long has it been running, Sheila? When would that? Yeah, that was in two thousand. Two thousand. That was the first one. And uh, 
And it did, you know, it just, it cast light on people who have been working incredibly hard doing all these extraordinary things. But but no one's gone along and said, you are marvelous, aren't you? And, you know, what, what we, we talk about arcs, you know, what what we see from the nominations, the, the change, you know, since yeah. the beginning of the Real Bread campaign, we've, we've seen this enormous growth in bakers all over Britain. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just for posh people in in nice parts of London or Manchester or Liverpool or, or Edinburgh or Edinburgh or Aberdeen <laughs> um, you know one of the winners was um, Barrow and Furness which is one of the most drug ridden sadly poorest towns in Britain it has fantastic bakery yeah, yeah. Um, so you know this I mean like, I was so happy last year um, it was the first one that we'd had since since lockdown I mean uh, and Tim Davy, the director of the Director General of the DG, as we say in the BBC, Director General of the BBC, came down into the green room where we were all sitting, the presenters and the judges and everybody. And he said, this is the beating heart of the BBC. Hmm. And he's dead right because it reaches, it just reaches into far corners that, you know, that Hmm. the the national media just is not interested in. Yeah. We we were lucky. Can I just say to, to get some pages, the publisher to give us some pages to put a, oh, a, a selected list of of winners at, at the back of the book of, of the Food and Farming Awards. And and I went through just to check that some of them were still around, and it was really encouraging to see that out of all over the years, any two or three had actually disappeared or, or gone wow. missing. That's really yeah. that, that's surprising and wonderful. Mm. And, 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 I was really and surprised. A lot, I thought that it? it might not. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I also think I'll ask you how how important to the awards is the and farming because it could just be the food awards, it could be the food program awards, and farming because food and farming are inextricable. I mean, we saw that when Henry Dimbleby's national food strategy and you know the white paper and you know which is kind of <laughs> a bit of a damp. No, I won't say that because I'm a BBC person and the white paper that came out, which was not sadly quite as powerful as um, the strategy, but. But they're they're part of you know that's what we do at the food program. You join up the dots between the fourteen billion you're spending in the NHS on type two diabetes and the way that you're farming on the banks of the Wye River. Mm. You know those things are connected. Yeah, and you know talking about joining up the dots, I hugely feel that's what the book, your book does, Alex. Um, Thank you so much both for joining us. Um, Alex Renton, author of 13 Foods That Shape Our World, um, the book that sprung out of the food programme. Alex, lovely to talk to you. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Um, and, Thank you. And uh, Sheila Dinan, food programme. I say you are the food programme, but so says so Dan and Leila and Jaeger. Uh, you know, really, really such a cracking team, and I you know, personally love it, and I'm sure lots of our listeners do. Um, thank you both so much for joining us, um, and thank you all for listening along to Borough Talks. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back with more Borough Talks soon. A reminder that Borough Market is now open seven days a week. For those who can't make it down here, you can still enjoy the best of Borough at Borough Market online with nationwide delivery. You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market traders.